Digital Deacon Podcast. Hi everyone, this is a recording of my reflection for Mothering Sunday 2020 for the date of 22nd of March. Today, as we know, is Mothering Sunday. And it's traditionally the Sunday where folk would return to their mother church, which was usually the church where they had been baptised. Servants were given the day off and allowed to return home. There they attended church and spent the day with their actual mothers and their other family members. These days, tradition has changed somewhat to one where we now celebrate mothers and compare the way that they act to the way that God acts and to the way that God's church cares for people. I think this is particularly poignant as a message, given that at the moment, so many of us are separated from our mothers and our home churches. We are not, however, separated from God, nor can we be. In this reflection on mothers in the Bible, I'll be using a couple of pieces of creative writing, which I might have used before in a previous podcast. However, I like them, and they fit the theme. And everyone likes to hear a story, even if it's one they've heard before. The first story that I want to share is based on a mother who isn't even in the Bible. It's from a story which Jesus told about two sons and their father. It's sometimes known as the parable of the prodigal son. And if you want to find it, it can be found in Luke's Gospel in the Bible, chapter 15, beginning with verse 11. The youngest of the two sons decides that he wants his share of the father's wealth now, rather than wait for his father to die. The father gives in and presents the youngest son with his money, and off the son goes to another country to live it up. A famine strikes the new country. His money runs out, and his new friends run out soon after, and he's left with nothing. Faced with the choice between feeding pigs and stealing their leftovers, and the option of going home to ask his dad for a job, The son sets out for home, rehearsing his script on the way. He'll admit that he's done wrong. Come to his father not as a son, but as a hired hand, and hope to get a job. Dad sees him coming from a mile off, and welcomes him home with a feast. The big brother is annoyed by this, as he thinks his brother has got off scot-free. And so he goes off in a huff. The father finds him and explains that everything he has belongs to the older son. But his brother was dead and now has come back to life. And that is something which needs celebrating. In the the parable of the prodigal son, why is the mother missing from the story? The mother may seem to be missing, but the actions of the father are more like those of a mother in some ways, 
In many ways, it is really the father that is missing, or at least it is by the actions of the father that he's missing. In other words, he doesn't act like the biblical fathers did. If we say that the father in the story is representative of God, then what we are saying is that some of God's ways, God's natural ways of acting towards humanity are as much like that of a mother as that of a father. And so the story I wrote was basically a letter written from the prodigal father to his wife, who I presumed was no longer with them. Dearest Miriam, if only you were still with us, you would have known what to do, what to say, how to handle this situation. When he asked for his inheritance, thereabouts wishing me dead in doing so, I thought he was just blowing off steam, railing against his old man the way that young men do. Only this time he stuck to his guns. So angry, so sure of himself, but most of all so desperate to be his own man. He didn't want to live in his father's shadow, always compared to his brother. After you died, I did not know how to fill the gap that you left in their lives. Malachi was older, he just got on with it. But young Yusuf was just so angry. He blamed me for you not being there. He was angry for me not being you. So when I asked, I didn't know what else to do. How else to show him that I loved him. So I let him go. He took his money and left. Never to be seen again. Every day after he left, I imagined every terrible thing that could have happened to him after he left our care. I saw him dead from robbers, dead from famine, dead from a simple accident that I had the power to prevent. I felt how you must have felt every time either of them had gone off alone as they grew up. When they went off to play with other children and you waited and worked near the doorway so that you could hear them and go running if needed. I thought you foolish then. They couldn't have come to much harm and they needed to learn. You agreed but said it wouldn't stop you worrying. After Yusuf left, I knew how you felt. Imagine my joy on that day. When, after what had seemed like an eternity of waiting by the doorway for a son that I now thought dead, I saw walking slowly down the road, not the boy who had run away from home, but the man who had walked back to it. As soon as I saw him, my legs were already carrying me forward. How had you restrained yourself all those years? when they'd come in late or come home hurt? How did you walk over calmly to them, wrap your arms around them, 
overcome by the love and joy and relief that you must have felt every day. I was running. Robes flapping in the wind, sandals flip-flopping in the dusty track. I must have looked a real sight. I didn't even let him get a word out. How did you manage to listen through their excuses and reasons for their mistakes without bursting out laughing from the joy that I knew that you had had from having them home? You would have been proud of me, Miriam. I wasn't stern. I didn't judge. I didn't even ask where the money had gone. Our boy, now a grown man, was home and he was alive. He had died a thousand times in my nightmares. And now he was here, resurrected and alive. We threw a party the likes of which the region had never seen. The fatted calf was killed. For what occasion could be more important than to give thanks to God for bringing our son back from death? Of course, Malachi was not happy about this. I'd always been so hard on both of them, but I always expected the most from him as the eldest. He's so steadfast. I ensured him that... His inheritance was secure. The remaining two-thirds of the estate was all his. But how could we not celebrate now that our family had been brought back together? I realise now that what they needed from me was not just to be their father who commands and instructs and expects great things of them. I also needed to be mother, teaching them love mercy and acceptance. If you'd still been here, I don't think Yusuf would have taken so long to come home. With his mother, mercy was assured. With his father, at least as he saw me, he was afraid to come as anything more than a man in search of work. So Miriam, my lovely Miriam, our family is once again whole. Our sons are home and safe. And the space you left in our lives is filled by you, in me. A complete parent, father and mother. As God is too, for all humankind. I think the actions of God or the father in the story are those of a father at the beginning but a mother at the end. The story reveals the completeness of God's person and care for humanity. This isn't to say that fathers don't care for and love their sons or that mothers aren't stern but that Parents complete each other and complement each other. There are some truly amazing mothers in the Bible, such as the mother of Moses. In the book of Exodus, we find out that the Hebrew slaves of Egypt had grown in such number that Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians were afraid of an uprising. 
So Pharaoh gave the order to have all of the baby boys killed so that they could not grow up to oppose him. Moses' mother, we read, risked absolutely everything in order to ensure the safety of her son. She put her faith in God and gave Moses up so that he could live. When Mary, Jesus' mother, was a young woman engaged to marry Joseph, the angel Gabriel came to her and told her that she would give birth to God's son. Even though doing so would endanger her life, endanger her future marriage, and ultimately break her heart as Jesus went to the cross, she gave everything. What follows are a couple of story-like reflections, which I wrote while I was in college, reflecting on looking after a baby. I wondered how it might have been for Mary, as a young woman, looking after Jesus as a baby, as she dealt with all the things young mothers have to deal with. How can one baby produce this much poo? On solids for only two days now, and his mother is already regretting it. It's a curious fact that when you become a parent, you become obsessed with poo. Colour, consistency, smell. But it's not that surprising when they need to be changed at least 10 times a day. This task becomes the skeleton on which the meat of your day hangs. At last, she thinks, at last it's bath time. No need to worry about wiping, just let him sit and splash in the warm water. These are the moments that she loves, her and her son, beginning to play. He responds so much more these days and he smiles most of the time. He's splashing and laughing happily. So he turns so she turns to the bread warming in the oven. The splashing suddenly gets louder and the laughter turns to tears. Oh no, she thinks, turning back quickly to the large, slightly cracked bowl where the baby was sitting. Her fears are relieved though. He'd only splashed himself in the face and taken him by surprise. Mary gently lifts Jesus from the bath, cuddling him up in a large warm cloth. She sings soothingly to him and he begins to calm down. Mary lets out a relieved sigh and returns to her daily routine. Punctuated with feeding mashed vegetables and wiping the bottom of the Son of God. And the next one was written partly from my own experience of dealing with a child who suffered quite badly with colic. Jesus is screaming. Baby Jesus. Purple in the face, barely breathing in, screaming. It is probably two in the morning, but the state that Mary is in, she can't tell. 
Jesus had been screaming for what seemed to Mary like four hours. Inconsolable and less moving, bouncing, jiggling. So Mary walks. So Mary walks the, pa- the, wi- the miles that parents walk. Round in circles, back and forth. Her legs are burning and her arm is numb. Jesus gurgles contentedly by her ear. Dare she stop? Has he finally settled? Can she? Should she sit? Lay him down? Chance going back to sleep? Exhaustion makes the decision for her and her knees buckle and Mary sits back into the cushions of the lower room of the house. Silence. Mary looks into the face of her son, her holy gift, God as man in her care. Jesus' eyes are clenched shut, a tear bubbling in the corner of each, and his face is screwed into an incandescent mask of anguish. His mouth is wide and sucking in all the air from the room. Silence and then the world ends with a sound that makes the teeth ache and the hearing crackle. It is all Mary can do in the face of this barrage of noise to struggle to her feet and once again begin her slow plod on to infinity. As Jesus begins to calm and quiet again, Mary hears a different sound from the upper room where Joseph lies sleeping. The sound is long and drawn, coming from the lips of Joseph, a sound reminiscent of him sawing wood in his workshop. The sound cuts through Mary and she hates him. How can he sleep through this? How can he sleep, leaving me to do all the work? Again, she feels the dead weight on her arm. The numbing needles prickling into her fingers and hears the pathetic whimper in her ear. She's had enough. All she wants to do is sleep, rest, collapse. It would be so much easier if Jesus wasn't there. She remembers that she was once told that his future would be hard for her. And it's this hard now? The thought keeps creeping as the burning creeps through her bones. The thought hisses in her mind. Wouldn't it be easier if Jesus wasn't here? You could take him outside and just leave him. You could put him by the window. Maybe the wild dogs might solve the problem for you. Mary begins to move without thinking, limping towards the window, lifting Jesus down from her shoulder, 
She lays the screaming bundle of rags down and turns to walk away. As she does, the cloth falls away from Jesus' face, just a little, and Mary looks into the face of her son and feels a feeling which surfaces, louder and stronger than the thoughts, louder than the burning, louder than the screaming. It is love. With tears of pain, tears of love, and tears of frustration stinging her eyes, Mary stoops and picks up her son. She straightens up and clutches Jesus tight to her breast and resumes her slow, stumbling march into the dawn. Mary gives us a model of how we should relate to God. From the very outset, Mary accepts her role. She's given a ministry by God, and even knowing that it will be hard, she accepts. We often forget Mary in the Reformed tradition, but I believe that we do so at our peril. She was, in many ways, the first disciple. And she was there until the very end with Jesus. It would have been Mary who would have taught Jesus the stories of the Hebrew scriptures. It would have been Mary who would have sat Jesus on her knee and told and retold the stories of God's relationship with God's people. She would have been the one who taught him to pray and to give thanks. Although it's not mentioned in the Lost Son parable, the mother's influence is seen in the actions of the son. When the son comes to his senses, he remembered what he'd been taught. I have sinned against you and against God. This was not something that a young man learns in synagogue or in temple. They learn it in the primary place of Jewish worship, the home. They would have learnt it not in temple, on the steps with some rabbi, but from their mother on her knee. A number of years ago, when the new Methodist worship book was released, there was a bit of a big hoo-ha about one simple word that was found in it. Individual churches and even some circuits at the time decided that they could not adopt it simply because of this one word. Clearly this was a very dangerous word and would have caused all manner of problems if it was said in church. Do you have any idea what that word was? Mother. One prayer in the new book had these words. God our Father and our Mother, 
we give you thanks and praise for all that you have made, for the stars in their splendour and the world in its wonder, and for the glorious gift of human life. With the saints and angels in heaven, we praise your holy name. I think this was due to the language that's been used in the Bible in describing God. And I think people get mixed up between God the Father and God the completeness of the Trinity. Because while God prays to God the Father and talks very much about his Father in male terms, God as a whole has no gender. The language used to describe the Holy Spirit in the Bible's native languages is either female or gender neutral. In God, there is then aspects of father and mother. God is the complete and the perfect parent and the model for us to follow in that. Every man who has ever been a true father to someone has shown that someone something of the nature of God. Every woman who has been a true mother to someone has shown them the nature of God as well. Because it is in parenting, whether to a child born to us or children that God brings into our lives, that we show the true unconditional love, which we find as a description of God in the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It is not proud. It doesn't dishonour others. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. God as Father lets us leave. God as Mother rejoices when we come home again. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe.